Welcome to the Melbourne Business School podcast. I'm Jan Marshall. Today we're talking to Professor Sahel Iniyatula, a political scientist and futurist at the Graduate Institute of Future Studies, Tamkan University, and co-facilitator of our Futures Thinking and Strategy Development Program here at Melbourne Business School. He has over 30 years experience as a forward thinker and in 2015 was awarded the first UNESCO Chair in Future Studies. He has helped leaders all over the world create the narrative they need to shape their future. So, Sahir, thank you for dialing in from Honolulu today. To start us off, could you tell us about the work you do and who you are as a futures thinker? Uh, well, the main thing we try to do is work with governments, institutions, organizations to not just predict the future, which is very difficult to do, but to adapt to changing conditions. And if we do our job well, they become co-creators, they start to invent desired futures. So part of our work is saying, how is the world changing? What are the capabilities we need in this new world? Let's develop a vision of the long term, and then let's find a core narrative or story or metaphor that empowers us, that frames what we need to do. So that's essentially the content part of it. And my own work is I'm the UNESCO Chair in Future Studies. So my goal is to not just... Uh, help organizations, but create a global, let's say, forest of foresight, where you're not predicting the best organization that's future-oriented, but creating the possibility where futures thinking is part of what every nation or institution or even small NGO does. Okay, so that's a really interesting idea that people, organizations, governments can actually learn from you to take up some of this thinking themselves. It's not necessarily just the domain of bringing in a consultant, an expert to, to do the futures thinking or the foresight or anticipate those changes, but it can embed some of those skills in others. That's exactly it. We don't want to be the expert about the future. So there's, there's always kind of a seductive risk. Please tell us the future. Many CEOs, HR directors straight away, so that's fine, just tell us what we need to do. And we're very clear, we don't want to play the consulting game in that sense. It's really helping develop their capabilities so they have a more effective narrative about the world they want. That must really open up their minds to something they may not have thought was possible for people, I suppose, in everyday life to stop and consider the future in this way. What reception do you get when you plant this idea with them that they too can adopt these skills? Well, I mean... Uh, in the 80s or 90s, it was more difficult because there was a sense that tomorrow will be like today. The world was more certain. And the kind of disruptions we've seen the last 20 years, 30 years, the fall of the Soviet Union, the rise of China, uh, digital plus genomics, 3D printing, uh, massive disruptions, you know, just from taxi to Uber. Those type of changes suddenly the future was about Jetsons and now it's become, no, actually the future's impacting me now. I need to learn from the future and make different decisions. So did that change the approach you took to these governments and corporations about how they go about that process given the disruptive environment and that the future is touching them now? Our approach is the same. It's the, I would say people are far more open to it. They're excited about it, they're open. They want to be part of the solution. Every once in a while, we still get people to just predict us the future, and we're very clear. It's an open system, meaning the prediction, in effect, 
changes the likelihood of the prediction. Yes. So you, you make a forecast, now you've made it, people act on it. So it's not a closed system, it's an open system. So those who don't like uncertainty, it's far more difficult for them. Those who can embrace it and develop scenarios and visions, it's, it's far more exciting. It's, it, it creates possibility. So what advice do you have for those people who may be in business running down a certain stream with products or services and you come along and help them understand the sort of future that they may need to be working towards, which could feel risky for them. How do you help them to move towards that future at the same time as holding the present state? And, and how do you find that people react to that? Well, you've hit the tension. Uh, phase one is identifying, anticipating the emerging possible future. And then phase two of the issue is, well, how do I change my core business? I know there's a whole range of federal governments and departments, in, in, for example, in Australia. I know 10, 15 years ago, we were talking about artificial meat, the new meat, pure meat, the whole range of what's called cellular, cellular agriculture. And say, well, this technology is coming to Australia. You, do you want to defend against this? Do you want to regulate it? Or do you want to say, well, let's help farmers actually innovate in this area. So that becomes the debate. So many, let's say clients or customers or colleagues or partners, uh, the normal response is defend, right? Here's a new product or a new idea or a new organization or a new country coming in my sphere. In my sphere. I need to ensure they don't enter. Uh, sometimes that possible, it's possible, generally it's not. So phase two is how do I partner with them? Phase three is, well, how do I use some of those ideas for my own innovative capabilities? So artificial or pure meat was a crazy idea 15 years ago, and now with Memphis Meat, their IPO is coming out soon. So it's gone from crazy outlier, only futures people were thinking about it. Now it's become part of the business environment. So it's a, it's a disruption of the entire food chain, definitely the disruption of the meat chain. As you're suggesting, is very quick. So from conception to a reality, it seems to be faster than ever. Yeah, so this is what I've just finished a project with Interpol a few months ago, and they have the same question. How do we, we're always behind in a way organized crime, right? Uh, how do we go from reacting to here's a crime, let's solve it, or let's help national governments solve crime, to how do we become more proactive? We start to predict the changes in organized crime. So how do we get ahead of the game and then enhance capability in each national government? So that, that was a very powerful meeting. We had 40, 50 directors, and now we're trying to, we're, they've set up a global kind of crime scanning unit. Because it always, they are, most organizations get surprised, even though in our work as futurists, we can, you know, you can't get, this is not prediction, but we can anticipate, okay, here's two or three things we need to be thinking about. So I know seven, eight years ago, we were, you know, of course, obviously, we were talking about dramatic changes in cybersecurity. The Internet of Everything, that's not just the interesting futures idea. If you have, you know, driverless cars, then clearly cyber safety is first. You can't talk about automating the city without having really strong cyber safety, cybersecurity protocols. And what I hear in that too is that if you, if you don't quite predict the future, you're anticipating it, at least what you're doing is creating the muscle for people to flex towards possible futures so that actually by doing some of this work, if they're not quite ready for what actually happens, they're far more ready than they would have been had they done nothing. That's brilliant. 
So our research is pretty clear, whether you call it effective futures or immersive futures, or the goal is it's not just cognitive. So when we do scenario work, we set them in workshops, role-playing. So we say, okay, here's scenario one uh, for, you know, in terms of uh, traditional meat is still the main product in 2025. Here's scenario two, you have the new protein. Here's scenario three, you have a mixture. So you actually put them in that situation, they role-play, then the understanding of the future is no longer just cognitive, it's emotional, it's strategic. It's kind of, it's, you might say it's tangible. The future is not way out there. It's something they can experience. It brings it into the present. Yes. Yeah. To do that well, I mean, our goal is futures literacy. So it's not futures prediction. I know I always worked with a large international organization in Rome. And they want to make the world, it's food safety issue, right? And so they said, well, we sent out surveys and questionnaires. Uh, many of our vets, our food safety science struggle, they don't know how to answer our questionnaire. We're asking about food safety risk in 2040, in 2030. Mm-hmm. So it quickly it became obvious that your questions were good, but the local national scientists didn't have the literacy yet to respond. Yeah, so right. it can't be just, yeah. So the real project became, well, how do we develop futures literacy around, for example, food or food safety throughout the world? Wow, yes, I could hear that, that piece of uh, missing for people to even start to imagine what that could look like and having some tangible concepts around food of 2040 that could enable them to know what food safety would look like. So that's a critical idea. Use futures as a practice. We're engaging it today that no longer works, but we keep on doing it. Right. So we have an image that in 10 years will be the same. So it's a use future. Once I can challenge that, it's like no one wants to start a new project if you have too much heavy weight from the past. So yeah. I say, well, let's leave some of that baggage and start to move. So I work with the universities. The issue is, well, why do we have to still check in, clock in, clock out? If we really want you know, a new peer-to-peer revolution, we want holographic revolution, we want to teach and learn differently, uh, what things do we have to get rid of so we can have greater connectivity, emotional, personal, technological. So that would be quite a shift for people uh, because at the same time, so we've got that used future, the the future we're working at now, we've got what we want to move to, but sometimes we've got to hold both at the same time. We've got to keep a business running with the existing successful piece whilst we redevelop this new future. That's exactly it. I'm working with the, one of the largest lending organizations in the world, and that's their question. The way we've been lending and measuring our impact is working. We're really good at it. And yet when we look at the result of their lending practices, congested, polluted Asian cities, for example, then clearly we're lending and we're doing well, but we're not creating the future we really want, which is sustainable, green, smart, livable, breathable, freshwater Asian cities. How do we lend differently? So we're not lending based on the type of products or imagined cities we want from yesterday. We're lending based on what's their image of our city or country in 2030, then this lending organization, this large bank, then we lend appropriately. So, so there's someone else in another, the largest bank in the world. He's starting his PhD with me and he said, it's really good we didn't lend money or telephone poles to India. Right, I mean, that's so, so you lend so much money they build telephone poles in 2018. Yeah. That country now has this debt. They can't pay back. And you have telephone poles that are useless. 
And do you find that people are willing to go that journey to imagine that future that is more ideally created? I, I know with governments, for example, um, we often accuse them of being very short-term. And I think that the desire often is that what, how, do, how do we do this long-term piece? How do we have a corporate that can think beyond the telephone poles to what that might look like and also take in to consideration the community within that's touched by this. You referred to the, the dirty city before, so we're all part of that system as well. No, I mean, you've hit the tension perfectly. So one, within a kind of a normal parliamentary system, future thinking is near impossible. Because uh, the legislators, the mayors, federal parliamentarians I've worked with around the world, he said, look, we don't get elected on vision, we get elected on short-term results. So the vision has to link to re-electability. Otherwise, it's, it's useless. So that becomes tension one. So I know in Sweden, they have a minister for the future. Finland, they have a council of future generations. So the smarter governments have said, okay, we understand the three-year cycle. Let's find a way to actually build in futures thinking. So as a nation, we're actually thinking about where we wish to go. So that's... Mm -hmm. So that's, there's structural ways to do that. Part two of what you're saying is in futures workshops that really work well, everyone's included. So this is all the stakeholders because your citizens may be more reactive than the scientists or the thought leaders. So how do you bring the citizens in so they are not afraid of a high-tech future or high-spirit future or high-green future? So it's, it's, it's really also changing that larger narrative. So to short-term electability and then also how do we have that dialogue it's a similar tension in a corporation isn't it so how do we have that dialogue about the future all of us and be invested in that i had one mayor in one country we were talking about the green city green buildings to reduce cancer increase health increase how people felt at work and the next day he asked why does that guy want me to paint all my buildings green <laughs> So, you know, so, you know, I, you know, I was like, okay, well, that's kind of weird. Uh, but then it was like, okay, so he doesn't or she doesn't have the futures literacy skills yet. We have to work with that mayor to get him to see if you have greener buildings, you have healthier citizens, your productivity will be better, your tourism will increase. So there's that kind of slow learning piece that's more important than just give me the solution. It sounds like really exciting work, Sahar, very, uh, at its best, it, it has the potential to be very satisfying for all those involved, including you. It's a buzz. When it works well, it's fantastic. I have had keynotes where the audience turns on you and they freak out. Uh, the sense of future shock, uh, they get so freaked out, they go into panic and they go into fight mode. Uh, so that does happen, but when the ground is prepared well, uh, for example, with this bank I was talking about, first we worked with the three of their leaders, then it became getting hundreds of people involved. So like a step-by-step -step process. Uh, again, with international policing, we've been doing that for at least a decade, working with leaders and detectives everywhere. So it's very much, I mean, I find we have to be smart about this. The goal isn't to shock people about the future, it's to co-create with them so they feel part of this emerging future. So Sahel, I, I'm now going to succumb to temptation and ask you, what uh, are those disruptions that you're seeing um, and that 
that future that you might like to touch on for us? What, what's most prominent in your mind right now? I know you've written a book about Asia. So, no, so our new book is Asia 2038, about 10 disruptions that change everything. So this was actually a report uh, commissioned by the prime minister of a certain country. And once we finished it, then they said, you can have the digital property. We wrote a book from it. And we were thinking, okay, well, what are we, they said, we already know the economic trends. Can you help us think about what are some of the outliers that can really change everything? So the first disruption we saw in Asia is the metaphor was a bird cannot fly on one wing alone. What would Asia look like with gender equity? At the board level, at the prime minister level, at, you know, kind of almost every level, real gender equity. What's the untapped GDP? What's the untapped potential? So that's our first thing in Asia. Imagine by 2038, this true gender equity throughout Asia. And we're seeing signs. Thailand boards are leading in gender equity. We see prime ministers in Asia that are female. We see this kind of shift. What would an Asian female future look like? So we're seeing the seeds. We're not saying this will happen. We can start to imagine it. So what is the potential for this conception of the future? Well, so the thing we see first, if you're invested in the old world, you're less likely to think about the future. So if I'm getting benefits from a traditional technology, uh, oil, oil or coal, for example, I'll be less interested in renewables and solar. So then who ends up being thinking about the future? They're less vested in the present. So if you think about Asian females, they're less excited about the current phase, but they would be the ones more open to a different future because, of course, power will be shared. Yep. yep. So then you get an incredible expansion of GDP throughout, uh, throughout the region because you get different people involved. And we know from the finance literature, uh, when you have a female, basically, financial manager, they tend to do better. Whether it's risk-taking behavior, the quantitative literature suggests that they're better financial managers. So this is something we start to play with. Well, what, what does that future look like? So that's just one disruption. Now, our other big one was the Asian model for education has been the factory. So the factory produces standardized people, standardized products, which is great if that's your goal, copy-paste. But as we move to the world we're in now, and certainly by 2038, it's going to be differentiation, your, unique, your uniqueness, it's your ability to learn and teach differently. So then it's going from the factory model to a playground, uh, an ecology, to a park, to a virtual park. It's going to be far flatter, far peer-to-peer, face-to-face with holograms. So in that type of world, ministries throughout the Asian region and Australia have to shift dramatically. There's many implications of that future that you paint. Yeah, I mean, we've been looking at, I know people want to do knowledge revolution, but it's really they're saying, let's do coding, learn a bit of English, or let's do coding and learn some Asian languages. But really we're saying, no, it's adapting to this new future. Uh, one of the best uh, metaphors I got was someone said that in a workshop, uh, your best friend is your robot forever. <laughs> right. So best robot friend forever. So that became like a tagline. So we're going to have AI everywhere. The real skill will be emotional. So that's kind of the adaptive future. Fantastic. Sahel, do you have any final thoughts as we finish up our, our conversation today? Well, really for organizations, I mean, I would go step by step. One is how is the world changing? And to really think, okay, here's what we know, here's what we don't know. 
then part two is saying, okay, what's my current metaphor of the world? With, with one large organization, uh, when we were doing this, they said, okay, we're like an old blind elephant. So we're slow old blind elephant. We need to be futures oriented, but our core narrative is, and some of the rooms said, I, he disagrees. So I said, well, what's your alternative metaphor? They said, the elephant's already dead, we're too busy to notice. This becomes, if I'm so busy to notice, then actually I don't have the literacy to adapt or to create and to invent alternative futures. So their better metaphor was an octopus. You know, intelligence everywhere, having a brain, ability to shift. And you know, I'm not saying every organization should be an octopus, but figuring out here's my current narrative, what's the better narrative, and then how do I use those narratives to create new capabilities to be not just prepared for the future arriving, but to start to play in the creation game. Fantastic. That's, they're great thoughts to leave people with. So, Hal, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. We re really appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much, Jan. To find out more about our programs and Sir Hale, please go to mbs.edu.